But it is a great honor and joy to be here with you this morning at St. George's Nashville. I want to especially thank uh, your rector, Father Gillum, and the rest of the clergy, and you good folks for your warm welcome. Uh, I want to look this morning at our gospel text, but I'll tell you a little bit about me, just a little bit so you know who's preaching up here. I am a suffragan bishop, that means an assistant bishop, in the Arctic, in the far north of Canada. Now, you may think the border of Canada is the far north, but I'm, you know, a couple thousand miles north of the border, way, way up there. The latitude is, is where I live is about the latitude of Fairbanks, Alaska, if you've been there. There are four bishops. There's one diocesan, three suffragans. I'm one of the suffragans. And I also run a theological college up there where I train local indigenous people for ministry. But I'm not only a bishop, I'm a husband to Jen. We've been married 17 years. I'm a father to Ben, who's 10. Ben, my boy, lives outside, plays outside all day, except when the temperature gets to about 40 when it's too hot and he comes in. <laughs> if it's cold, that's no problem. If it's hot, like 40. I've been there 15 years in the Arctic. I, I'm not from there. I didn't grow up there, but God called us there. So there we are. So let's think together about this gospel text in Luke, which is at the end of chapter 16. And this text is, on one hand, about what we do or don't do, about how we relate to the poor and vulnerable. But at a deeper level, it's about the dangers of pride. And I think all of us know something about pride. I know I do. It's any, it's any preoccupation with ourselves that hinders our ability to love God and love others. The, um, the great African bishop, Augustine, described pride as being curved in on yourself. In other words, we're made to love God and others, but pride sort of warps us so our will goes inward. And that curving inward can look different. It can be arrogance. It can be self-pity. It can be a need for validation. It can be a preoccupation with grievances. In other words, this, this, this thing called pride takes many forms. But the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy for that. It's the medicine for the illness that is pride. And so ultimately, this text, this parable, is about what God has done for us in Christ, and what He continues to do in us and through us. So today's text, it's a parable. It's a strange parable, and it doesn't get any less strange the more you read it. In fact, the more you read it, the more you think about it, the more it gets in your head, the stranger it is. And that's okay, because these parables are meant to get in your mind and heart and and do, it, do their work inside you. So, if you don't feel completely comfortable with this parable, that's a good thing. That's okay. Jesus' teaching works like that. Gets in you and starts rearranging things. And it's okay that you're not comfortable with it. So, what's a parable? 
Um, in the language of the Inuit, where I live, they use a word for a parable. It's a juyuk in their language, which translates to something like a likeness or a similarity. That's what parable is, a likeness or a similarity. In other words, it's Jesus using earthy, day-to-day things like coins and sheep and shepherds and rich people, poor people, and using these things to teach us about God and the spiritual life. There's a likeness between the things, the elements of the parable, and God and the spiritual life, which is what Jesus wants to teach us about. So, in this particular parable, there's a story about two men in two very different circumstances. First man is a rich man. He's not named. He's just rich man. He's dressed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously. In other words, he's got the best food. He obviously has a nice house because there's a gate around it. And he's just in his house, shut out from the outside world. The second man is a poor man, but he is named. His name is Lazarus. No relation to the, the, the Lazarus and John, I don't think, but this is his name, Lazarus. He's not dressed in any nice clothes. He's covered in sores. He's not eating good food. He's begging for scraps that might fall from the table. And dogs, not nice domesticated dogs, but wild dogs lick at him. They're licking his body. And he's laying down at the gate at the entrance, which means that the man in the house, the rich man who's unnamed, has to walk over him every time he comes and goes from the house. So it's it's a story of contrasts, opposites. And it's remarkable that the poor man is named, but the rich man isn't. That's not the way things usually go. I could name you lots of rich people. The names of poor people are harder to remember. But there is something more going on. Because, see, names are about identity. Your name is how you understand yourself and how you tell others who you are. See, the rich man has no name because his wealth, his possessions, the stuff in his life, that constitutes his identity. That's who he is. Now, the tradition of the church has just called him Dives. That's not a real name. It's just rich guy in Latin. It's not a name. The poor man, though, has a name, Lazarus. And that name means God has helped. That's his name. God has helped. See, see, Lazarus's identity is not tied to his money, his possessions, his stuff, because he has none. His identity is tied to the fact that all he has is God. His life has broken him open such that he's vulnerable, exposed, and utterly dependent on mercy. That's his name. That's his identity. God has helped. And so the story is, they both die, as we all will someday. They die. 
And the first one to die is Lazarus, and he goes to paradise where he is, it says in Abraham's bosom, he's embraced, you could say, by Abraham, um, which he maybe never got in his life is a sense of touch. But he's embraced by Abraham. And the rich man goes to Hades, this shadowy, deathly, underworld place of torrent and punishment. And it's a vivid picture of the, the rich man in Hades in suffering alone, and the poor man in paradise with Abraham, and somehow they can, they can see each other distantly and communicate. It's a parable. It's a picture, right? That's what it's meant for. And the rich man down here makes two requests of Abraham up there. The first request is, send Lazarus to relieve my suffering. If you could just bring a little water to put on my tongue. The answer, no. Why? Because your fate here is a reflection of how you lived your life back then, back there. And there's a great chasm that has been fixed. Now, I think the rich man is the one that actually fixed the chasm, but anyway. So that's the first request. Request two, send Lazarus to go warn my brothers. Abraham says again, no. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament, which warns them against us to care for the poor and vulnerable again and again and again and again and again and again. They have that, and so do we. And then he says, well, if someone were to come from the dead, maybe they'd listen. The answer again is no. And the whole parable ends with Abraham saying to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it ends. That's the end of the parable. And notice the rich man's attitude to Lazarus even after death. For the rich man, Lazarus is mostly useless, but maybe he's useful now as an errand boy. He can run over and do something for him. Go and he can run around and do errands for him. He wants Lazarus to relieve his suffering. He didn't relieve Lazarus' suffering once in life. He wants Lazarus to warn his family, but he and presumably his family ignored Lazarus in life. You see, friends, the problem here is not that he, he's wealthy. The problem is he's blinded by pride. Maybe his money and wealth and possessions contributed to that blindness, but the problem is in him and it's deep. And in the same way, Lazarus is not good or accepted because he's poor. He's good because he's humble, because he's receptive of God's mercy. He's dependent. You know, pride is this heavy, crushing thing, but humility is light, joyful. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great line, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Say that one more time. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, because self-hatred can be another form of pride. Humility is thinking of yourself less. In other words, wealth and poverty are circumstances. They can come on you for a million reasons. 
wealth and poverty, sorry, not wealth and humility, wealth and poverty are circumstances. Pride and humility, though, are how we respond to those circumstances. It reveals our true character. So, what are the message, what's the message or the messages from this parable? The first one is obvious. Don't forget the poor and vulnerable. Don't forget the poor and vulnerable. And humility is, is the key virtue here. Uh, pope Benedict, he was the pope before Francis, he said that the church has three basic tasks, to worship the true God, to evangelize the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to care for the poor. And these are all deeply rooted in Scripture, and they're all important for us as individual Christians, and they're all important for Christian communities. So don't forget the poor and vulnerable. But there's more that needs to be said because the gospel is not just about what we do, it's about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And all we do, for good or ill, is only a response to what God has already done. See, Lazarus means God has helped. But how has God helped Lazarus? In the same way God has helped you. In the same way God has helped me. By doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now I want us to think here as we, as we close, to think of this parable in a new way. The parable as it stands is almost anti-gospel. But I want us to think of this parable in a new way. And the name of the rich man now is Jesus Christ. And he's robed in heavenly glory in his father's house. And he leaves his home and goes outside the gate and heals the sick and suffers in his body and dies outside the gate, exposed, vulnerable, humiliated. And Jesus, too, asks for water. He gets vinegar. But see, this line at the end about listening if someone rises from the dead points us to the truth that Jesus did rise from the dead, went into death as deep as possible and out the other side alive and radiant and wanting to bring us to life evermore. See, the rich man shows us an anti-gospel, no mercy, no hope, only individual self-interest, but Jesus shows us mercy, hope, love, compassion, humility. So friends, this week, as you pray, ask God for an opportunity to embody this gospel of mercy and humility. This gospel that Jesus said is good news for the poor. Ask God to bring someone into your path, into your life, who needs help, who you can show mercy to. Just be careful. God actually answers these prayers. 
And out of a heart overflowing with gratitude and humbled by the goodness of God, show that person the face of Christ. Might even be a family member. And what if St. George's Nashville, as a community, committed yourself more deeply to embodying this gospel of mercy and humility and showing the face of Christ in a more radiant more full way to the poor and vulnerable. And what if, as a community, you recognize that, in, in fact, we are all spiritually poor. We are all spiritually vulnerable. We are all dependent utterly on the mercy of God. So that overflows. When that goes deep in you, it overflows. And that, I think, friends, is a recipe for joy that's a recipe for hope. That's a recipe for transformation more fully into the image of Christ who gave himself for us. And so may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. And may you in turn reflect that glory to those you meet. Amen.